Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. And I am joined by my co-host, Pete Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Pete, how are you tonight? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here with you, Rachel. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the ASCS, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a very special episode. Today, we are honoring the legacy of Dr. Charles Rockwood, who recently passed away in February 2022 at the age of 92. Dr. Rockwood was known for so many things in orthopedics. Among them, he helped with the foundation of the American Shoulder and Elbow Society. He's the author of several key and landmark textbooks, including his famous text, The Shoulder, edited with Dr. Madsen, and Fractures and Adults, edited with Dr. Green. He was also instrumental in helping develop one of the initial total shoulder arthroplasty systems, the Depew Global Total Shoulder System, helping change the lives of patients around the USA and around the world. In addition, he was one of the founding faculty members of UT San Antonio Medical School and was the first division chief of orthopedics as well as the first orthopedic department chair. Dr. Rockwood was instrumental in training literally hundreds, if not thousands, of students, residents, and fellows. For this podcast, we've invited several shoulder surgeon superstars who are shoulder surgery legends themselves, each with a special relationship with Dr. Rockwood, including Drs. Cofield, Williams, Bigliani, Burkhead, and Matson. Because of the unique nature of this podcast and the length of the podcast, we've divided this into two separate podcasts. For part one, we will be interviewing Drs. Cofield and Williams. And in part two, we will be interviewing Drs. Bigliani, Burkhead, and Matson. We encourage all of our ASCS listeners to download both episodes of this podcast as they each offer a unique reflection on Dr. Rockwood and his legacy. For this podcast, we've invited several amazing shoulder surgeons who are legends in and of themselves and have contributed so much to the field of shoulder surgery and who each had a special relationship with Dr. Rockwood. Today, we have Dr. Lou Bigliani from Columbia University, New York, past ASCS president, as well as Dr. Wayne Buzz Burkhead from Carroll Clinic in Texas, past ASCS president. Dr. Bigliani, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me for such an important topic. And Dr. Burkhead, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure, and it's an incredible honor to uh, be able to talk about Dr. Rockwood. Today we have Dr. Matson from the University of Washington in Seattle, also an ASCS past president. Dr. Madsen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Pete, for having me. Why don't we get right into it? And Dr. Bigliani, we'll start with you. Tell us when and how did you first come to meet Dr. Rockwood? Well, it's very interesting. I got to meet him when I was a fellow with Dr. Neer. Dr. Rockwood would come up to uh, New York to uh, see Dr. Neer to learn more about shoulder surgery. And he and I got to be fast friends. Um, It was very interesting that Nier was very methodical and would take all day with office hours and then go on rounds late at night. And I would be in the back with Dr. Rockwood and he would turn to me and say, Lily, how can you put up with this? We should have been out here three hours ago. And we got to be really good friends and we had dinner together, played tennis and Really, uh, he was a great friend and mentor. Dr. Burkhead, how did you come to know and meet Dr. Rockwood initially? 
Well, I did my residency at uh, Parkland and Southwestern in Dallas, and so I knew Dr. Rockwood by reputation. I had interviewed uh, for his residency as well. And in 1983, I finished, and I had signed up to do a three-month uh, fellowship with Melvin Post, who was a shoulder surgeon in <clears throat> Chicago. He had just authored a clinics of North America on, on the shoulder, and I wanted to learn more about the shoulder, but I'd had a, a melanoma in the, earlier in the year, and I, was, I only wanted to spend about three months learning about the shoulder. Uh, prognoses were different back then. And at the end, he, uh, it turned out I couldn't go there because it was the year that DRGs came in and his hospital was going to go bankrupt. And so I called Dr. Rockwood on the phone. I said, I'm Buzz Burkhead. I met you when you came to Grand Rounds. I interviewed there. I'm really interested in the shoulder. I'd like to come spend uh, three months with you. He said, well, I don't know. I, I've got this. Uh, I, I have to think about it. I've never had a fellow from any place else. I had uh, Kenny Butters came here for a while, but uh, I don't know about getting any kind of outside guy, especially somebody from Dallas. That's very good. Well, very fond of Dallas. So anyway, he calls me back uh, two or three days later. This is like April or May, you know, and and, uh, I'm finishing my residency in in a month and a half and really don't have any place to go. He said, well, you can come down here, but uh, you got to come and you got to spend six months and I'm not going to pay you. He said, "Uh, we just formed this new society and, uh, you're going to have to do a six-month fellowship if you want to be a member, so you need to come down here and spend six months. And so that was my uh, intro. And when I came, uh, uh, there's so many stories I can tell about my first few days in San Antonio, but I don't want to monopolize everybody's time. But uh, I'll, I'll share those with you later if we have time. But that was my first experience. That I was only was going to come for six months, which at that time represented about one-twentieth of my life. Uh, in terms of what the doctors had told me, and I wasn't going to get paid either. So, uh, but looking back on it, I mean, no, no question. I don't even have to look back on it. Even while I was there, I can tell you it's the most important six months of my academic career and, and helped shape my life and my my career both. What an amazing introduction! And we are absolutely going to get to some of those stories, but we'll get to those in in just a little bit. Um, Dr. Matson, how about you? How did you first come to know Dr. Rockwood? Well, I, I was one of the fortunate people uh, that got a chance to spend some time with Dr. Near in the early days. And I think as Louis will remember, there, he sort of formed a, a group of people to get together every year and uh, just meet and talk about interesting things about the shoulder and talk about how uh, we might improve the care of patients with shoulder disorders. And Dr. Rockwood was among those. <clears throat> and we had a, at those meetings, had a few um, hallway conversations and we got to be uh, sort of working partners. And we talked about a number of things, including design of shoulder prostheses and putting out a shoulder book. And uh, over those uh years we developed a faster and faster friendship and um, worked on particularly on those two issues as well as on um, academy uh, CME courses um, trying to again share knowledge and learn more about the shoulder. I wanted to ask each of you if you have a favorite story like 
something when you think of Dr. Rockwood or when you when you talk about him, the the story that you know these was the the most fun to remember or best embodies you know him and your relationship with him or his contribution to our field. Dr. Dr. Bigliani, your thoughts. So I'm going to go a little on the uh, golf side. It was the AOA meeting in 1998 in at the Park Grove Inn in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. I was playing golf with Dr. Rockwood, who was a good golfer, and I got a hole-in-one on the 12th hole. And uh, when you get a hole-in-one, you have to buy drinks for the foursome. So we went to the lobby by the bar. And of course I said, uh, I've got the drinks and I meant the foursome. Dr. Rockwood announced to the whole lobby full of AOA members that Louis Villani just got a hole in one. The drinks are on him. So it was a very memorable hole in one, but a very expensive one. But that was typical Dr. Rockwood just rising to the moment and, uh, it was a remarkable situation. It was actually a lot of fun because I got a lot of compliments about that. So it was well worth it. That's, that is, that is unbelievable. How about you, Dr. Burkhead? Any favorite memories? The first day I was in the clinic at the VA and I saw a patient who had a, had a previous acromioplasty and had residual pain anterior in his shoulder. And I injected his biceps sheath and relieved all of his pain. <clears throat> and I presented him. Uh, to Dr. Rockwood later that day as a patient who needed a what the advisors had described as a four-in-one arthroplasty, which was an acromioplasty, re-excision of the CA ligament, distal clavicularectomy, and a biceps tendinitis. And the only word that Dr. Rockwood heard was biceps tendinitis. And this is what he said to me. Biceps tendinitis? Biceps tendinitis? Charlie Near has never seen biceps tendinitis. Frank Jones has never seen biceps tendinitis. I've been chairman of this department for 20 years. I've never seen bicep tendonitis. You've been here from Dallas for 24 hours. You got your case of bicep tendonitis. Let me tell you what I do with smart asses like you. I'm going to put you on a Greyhound bus this afternoon for the Durham, North Carolina. Leonard Goldner keeps a slot in the dermatology residency program for smart asses like you. So, Dr. Burke, you go ahead and pack your bags and get out of my sight. And he was president of the academy. And I thought, you know, maybe he could actually do that. But I got back at him uh, later. He asked me to do a video of patients who had done a, the Breedmont and uh, just an acromioplasty. He made no attempt to repair the rotator cuff, and no one believed him that that could relieve pain or improve function. They accused him of, of doing like marionettes and things. So he needed the uh, tell you how long ago this was. There was still a question whether VHS or, or Betamax was going to be the the format, so we had it in both. And so I, I did two versions of it. One was a very straight lace version, and the other was set to ZZ Top's Every Girl's Crazy About a Sharp-Dressed Man. And he didn't know about the straight version. I said I had taken some, he better look at it, because he was constantly going and coming, and he was getting ready to go to the shoulder and elbow meeting in uh, uh, Rochester, because Bob Cofield was the president that year. And I said, Dr. Rockwood, I think you better look at this before you go. He said, what do you mean? I said, I think you better look at it. I took some artistic license with it. Artistic license? What the hell is that? I don't even know what that is. I said, well, I thought it just seemed a little dull. So I put, uh, well, let's just, let's just watch it. So I took a couple of witnesses down there and 
it's timed, you know, perfectly. To, every girl's crazy about a sharp-dressed man with all these people throwing their arms up in the air. And he was white as a sheet. I mean, it's the first time I ever saw him speechless. He was he was apoplectic. But then I told him there was another version, and we showed him that. Well, his, I was always kind of an outsider because I wasn't one of his residents. <clears throat> but when he came back from that meeting, our relationship changed. It was like, you know, you can come over here and hold the arm. I could actually see what he was doing during surgery, which was a, a good position to be in. And uh, he said, Buzzy, uh, you wouldn't believe it. They fell into the aisles, and I showed him that video. He said, Charlie Nair, I think he might have pissed his pants. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, after that, I was one of the boys, and we had an incredible uh, collegial father-son relationship for the rest of his life. And I was down there. I saw him two weeks before he died. I would go down usually around Labor Day, or I guess maybe more than two weeks before he died. But I talked with him, FaceTimed him probably once every two or three weeks. Uh, so we, we had a, an incredible long-term, uh, beautiful relationship. And what about you, Dr. Manson? Do you have any favorite memories, standout memories of uh, Dr. Rockwood? So many, so many. But um, the one that I think is most important to orthopedics is um, his desire to keep the orthopedic family together. And uh, when he was gave his first presidential address to the academy, he talked about the importance of keeping the the different orthopedic factions from splintering off, you know, arthroscopy in one direction, hand in another direction, and feet and spine in another direction. And he really made a passionate plea that, um, just like the phrase we hear commonly today, that we are stronger together. And uh, at the conclusion of his speech, he had his, uh, his whole family, his nine kids and his wife, Patty, uh, up there on the stage. And I've always remembered that moment, and I, I know Buzz and, and Louie were there to, to see it, but it was a very compelling moment, and I think it really influenced a lot the direction that orthopedics has taken with still having one journal as our principal journal in spite of the other minor journals and everybody continuing to stay together and, as he said, keep the family. Yeah, he was really a great family man. He really uh, stressed that a big way. Uh, and uh, Patty was really wonderful. They had just a wonderful relationship. One thing we wanted to ask you guys, um, it seems like more so potentially in the older days, so to speak, um, that the giants of shoulder surgery at different meetings would debate each other, perhaps a little bit more openly than we see at some conferences today. Uh, just due to the nature of politics and and having to potentially be a little bit more polite nowadays than perhaps at meetings everyone was um, over the last you know 20, 30 years. For example, um, I have been told, although not witnessed, that rotator cuff repair versus debridement was a big debate uh, back in the day. Um, and some of these debates became a little bit heated, um, even a little bit argumentative, always in, in good, in good uh, intent, but just became a little bit passionate. Did you, any of you ever witness or even partake in perhaps such a debate with Dr. Rockwood about um, anything related to the shoulder at, at a national or local meeting? And can you yeah. tell us a little about that? Yeah, uh, 
you could be very serious with Dr. Rockwood because he agreed to disagree and he was always above board and you could state your case and he'd state his case and you'd go back and forth. And when it was over, it was over. Uh, he was uh, uh, really great about that. So uh, I had never a qualm about stating what I felt uh, was right when I was discussing something with him. And he likewise didn't. So he was a good person to debate with. To your question, Rachel, I was uh, at an academy meeting where um, Dr. Neer uh, got up and, and made the um, emphatic statement that the term irreparable rotator cuff refers more to the surgeon than it does to the patient, implying that uh, if you couldn't repair every rotator cuff, you were just not up to snuff. And Dr. Rockwood uh, came up on the stage behind uh, Dr. Neer and just emphasizing what uh, Louis just said, he said, I know that Dr. Neer can repair every rotator cuff that he sees, but I'm here to tell you that I can't. There are many rotator cuffs that I can't repair. And when I can't repair it, I just debride it. And uh, many of those patients do well, just like Buzz pointed out with his uh, ZZ Top video. So he was, he was very respectful, but he was also not shy about disagreeing right in front of everybody with the icon, the father of American shoulder surgery, right there. Absolutely, that that depicts what I was trying to say very well, and not saying anything negative uh, about Near, but being put putting a positive spin on it, but letting people know how he felt. And, and Rachel, if I can just uh, underline what you said, I think that um, the debate is. Um, needs to be re-enlivened. I think that uh, a lot of people have a lot of different views. And I think that rather than sort of um, pre-concocted debates, I think there needs to be more open discussion. And um, I long for that. I think that uh, that's where we learned a lot by hearing different opinions, because each of us has grown up differently. And each of us has learned di different things about what works and what doesn't work and what patients uh, things work in. And um, sometimes in the sort of rapid pace of academy or ASS, ASCS meetings, things go by so fast and the moderator is saying, you know, we're over time or whatever. And the, the opportunity to argue those points is lost. One of the big differences was the level of evidence requirements at meetings. I mean, when <clears throat> I started, I think I got into the Shoulder and Elbow Society, it was 1986. You know, the level of evidence was never above four, and most of it was level five expert opinion. But I've always maintained that honest, genuine expert opinion from somebody who really cares about his patients probably better than disingenuous level, any level of uh, evidence. And we'd have these guys like Carter Rowe who would stand up as great Southern Virginia, this fantastic, you know, bearing, and he would debate Virgil May over you know how you should do a bank cart rather than a Bristow procedure. And I remember that distinctly, but it never in those it, it, it were never vitriolic. Uh, they were all uh, gentlemen surgeons of that era era, I think. I, the only argument I had with him is that I did still believe that biceps tendonitis was a real thing. <laughs> and uh, 
for my sins, he gave me the biceps tendon chapter in his and Dr. Matson's <laughs> authoritative uh, text. You should never use that term in, in medical legal settings, but it is authoritative. And so he loved bibliographies. And so my bibliography went back, I think, around 1417. No, it might have even gone back to the Edwin Smith Papyrus, probably. Um, and so I think I had had a disc rupture. So Louis got had one. I think I was on Vicodin for about three or four days of writing, but it was really long. And uh, after two or three different editions, I finally, I, I basically told, told the story that I told you on the front end on the very first part of the chapter about this, you know, 19, uh, July 1983, the day I thought my career ended. And I, I edited a little vignette of that. And at the very end of the chapter, I said, hey, you know what, Dr. Rockwood? That guy did have biceps tendonitis. <laughs> <laughs> because by then, everybody had realized it. And I used to debate Louie. I distinctly remember debating Louie about, I always tended to use the biceps when I did a total shoulder replacement. But Dr. Near felt like you should preserve the biceps. And I thought you know, it's very hard to externally rotate the humerus if you've got somebody who's got a big contraction and the biceps tendon. And a lot of times they're osteophytes right there where the biceps is and it's shredded and full of, you know, fluid and loose bodies. But, you know, it just shows you how things change and, uh, you know, everybody agrees. But it was, it was really in response to, and this is something that I think Dr. Rockwood decried, and that's this herd mentality that we see in orthopedics where you latch on to an operation, whether it's a biceps tenodesis during the 50s and 60s when that was the most common operation done in the shoulder, uh, missing the fact that there were people who had impingement and attritional wear from chromial spurs and AC joint arthritis to, you know, superior capsular reconstruction is kind of the newest herd uh, group. But I think, uh, that his his comments to me, it's uh, they weren't hurtful. It didn't bother me at all because I, I knew he was just kidding. Well, sort I sort of knew he was kidding that he wasn't going to fire me. But you know, was that he was a great educator and he, he was a great teacher and he wanted to teach you basic principles. And his point was that you don't want to just diagnose biceps tendonitis willy nilly. You want to diagnose what the patient really has, and I uh, you know. And he's up in heaven. He's uh, looking down on me right now. He knows that guy had biceps tendonitis too, anyway. Yeah, I just want to add to that. He was also a great mentor. He did a lot of things positive for me in my career. You know, he would look insightfully and give you positive feedback that made you better. And a lot of people don't do that. So I think he should be really credited for being a great mentor. He, he was also a great listener, and I, I had the opportunity to be a member at large of the Academy Board when he was president, and uh, the first meeting he uh, presided over as president, he wore this hat with two bills on it, and it said, I'm their leader, which way did they go? And um, he, he, that sort of symbolized the fact that he was not trying to drag people in one direction or another. And at those board meetings, he really insisted that everybody, uh, even the lowly members at large, got a chance to say their piece. And he listened to everybody and he took everybody's 
counsel to his heart. And um, when he had to make decisions, he made it in um, the most fully informed way. And I think that that's, that's a distinctive characteristic of his leadership is that he was a good listener. And then to build on what both Louis and uh, Buzz have said, he was a great mentor. I mean, he promoted, uh, tried to advance the careers of everybody that he could. He, he had sort of a Midas touch and he tried to push people forward uh, in, in the best possible direction for them. Yeah, what example of that is early on in my career when I was moderating a session at the academy, uh, the presenter didn't show up. So I quickly said, let's go to the next presenter. And if the other presenter shows up at the end, we'll let him uh, present so that we wouldn't lose time. And it all worked out fine. We stayed on time. He came up to me after the session and said, that was really good. You thought quickly on your feet. Good job. And I mean, coming from him, that was a big deal. It sounds like he's been um, an important mentor for a lot of people. What do, what do you think his biggest contribution to orthopedics, to, to shoulder surgery really was, Dr. Biglani? Uh, I think it's the ability to pursue knowledge and to have your own opinion about things even if others that you've learned from have other opinions. He, he believed in that you should walk your own road and uh, think about things and come to your own conclusions and weigh all the material in front of you. He, he, he was a real original thinker. From my standpoint, uh, he, he was an incredible educator. And there are people that do a lot of research. There are people that... that that teach very well. And I don't think the people that teach very well are as well recognized, but clearly here's a guy who with the help of David Green, he was always good at finding, he was a big brush guy, you know, he, he painted with a spray paint and then he would get David Green and, and Rick Matson, who are much more perfectionistic uh, people to really, you know, do the deep dive into editing and everything. But he would have the idea to do things and there's a, a really role, great role for people that are educators and he always had a great sense of humor in today's day you know the council uh, culture he would have a lot of trouble uh and so would michael debakey for the matter but you know he was just a, a you would remember what he what he told you because he would do it so emphatically and he didn't want you to ever do anything that would harm i mean he was a, a patient advocate and and uh he, he his criticism of things like the bristow arthroscopy different things that came out it had to do again with this trying to get people away from a herd mentality uh, and and think you know about the patient and and what what needed to be done for that individual patient not just because that was the operation or Yeah, he taught, and he, again, back to trying to keep the family together, he had a very uh, strong international inclination. He was very concerned about helping share the knowledge with people from other countries, um, particularly South America. He was very concerned about people in the military. He had a special warm place in his heart for individuals in the armed forces. Um, and even as we put together courses or uh, put together the shoulder text, he really wanted to include 
the breadth of um, of shoulder surgery and nationalities uh, rather than just syncophants that all had the same idea. So he was inclusive, even if that inclusivity gave rise to differences of opinion. He was totally fine with having differences of opinion, and he'd rather have those differences of opinion out in black and white than uh, just sort of mumbled behind closed doors. Yeah, I remember the trip we took together to Argentina, to Buenos Aires, and uh, they had pulled a, they asked somebody, one of us to give a talk about shoulder fusion. I didn't have any slides in shoulder fusion, and I don't think you did either, Rick. And he just sprang up and said, I'll give the talk, and somehow got a couple slides together and gave an excellent lecture. He, he was just, he could do things off the cuff and really do a great job. He always did it with a good sense of humor. I think Rachel and Peter will appreciate this, but he had a one of his favorite sh slides was of a, uh, a worker down there of uh, some part of Texas, Buzz would know, but this man's uh, uh, arm was fused in um, neutral rotation. And he talked about the difficulty this guy had uh, getting to his fly. And uh, he had a much better way of saying it than I'm saying it, but I mean, he, he would, this is an example of how he'd illustrate the points with a little humor, but also with empathy for this uh, patient who had his shoulder fused in the wrong position. You remember that slide, don't you, Buzz? Yes, sir. Yeah. You know, one thing we wanted to ask you all, um, just, I mean, you each have incredible legacies yourselves within ASCS and what you've done for the society. And given Dr. Rockwood's role in helping to establish the ASCS, his legacy, of course, not only for that reason, but for so many others, will go on for generations and generations. What direction do you think he would envision the ASCS go toward in the future, especially as medicine evolves and healthcare evolves and, and societies are so important? What direction do you think you'd like to see ASCS go in? Um, let's start with you, Dr. Bigliani. Well, I think he would want us to be a strong society that's based on science and clinical research and takes excellent care of patients and uh, would not stress the monetary aspects of medicine over the care of patients and learning. Uh, he was a great, he was a really great one for education as it has been said before. So I think he would want us to be as good as we could be and to advance the science and practice of shoulder and elbow surgery. Dr. Burkhead, what about you? What do you think he um, would want out of ASCS? What direction do you see, do you think he would see this society going toward? Well, I'm sure that he probably helped draft the original mission statement of the ASCS. And I really don't think that has changed. And whether, whether or not he would like the inclusiveness now, I mean, it was a totally different society when uh, Rick and, and Louie and I were, were uh, active, uh, more active in it, and uh, much smaller, and to a certain extent, probably too exclusive for a long time. But you know, now it's 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 grown uh, tremendously, and I'm not sure what he would think about that. Uh, but other than the fact that you're educating people that are going to go out there and take care of patients, and it's better for them to come to these meetings and and learn from experts than it is to just out th be out there on their own, would be my guess. And Dr. Manson, how about you? What are your thoughts on this? You know, 
I think he would be concerned about the degree of commercialism that's uh, gone into a lot of the uh, the uh, innovations and so on that are coming. I mean, we have so many different implants that are coming down the line and uh, so many different uh, uh, options that are coming without a lot of evidence to support their superiority over what he did. Uh, and if you look at, for example, his results with shoulder arthroplasty or Dr. Nears, it's hard to see that uh, any of the results with modern implants are any better, if at all. And I think he would be a, encourage us to be cautious consumers of new technology, new innovations, and make sure that there was some clear evidence uh, that, it, uh, that they were advantageous to the patient. And I think part of this goes, to, for example, to his attitude toward arthroscopy. I mean, he was, he was a reluctant uh, convert. And only when the evidence really came out that you could accomplish things uh, arthroscopically that you couldn't any other way did, was he willing to be supportive. So I think he would urge us to be cautious. I would second that. I think that uh, he, he was a very thoughtful person and uh, really didn't like the commercialism of shoulder and elbow surgery. I think you're exactly right, Rick. For those of us... Um... You know, as as we proceed forward into 2022 and beyond, how, how do we honor his legacy? Like, it, if it's like as I go next October to the ASCS meeting, you know, what what do I what do I stand up at the microphone to ask someone to 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 fill in for the 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 void that Rockwood used to fill? What are your thoughts, uh, Dr. Burkhead? Well. <clears throat> It's been a while. The one thing about Charlie is that, you know, as famous as he was and as much as, as recognized, I mean, I, I'd go out on a limb and say he's the most famous orthopedic surgeon in the world and the most famous one that's ever lived because of the fracture book and the, everything he did education-wise. But, you know, he would be on the front row taking notes. And I, I wrote this in the memoriam I did, you know, and so it's hard for me not to go to go to an ASCS meeting and not see Dr. Rockwood there in his red golf pants, you know, taking notes. And, you know, every, a lot of the more senior guys are around the coffee pot, and, you know, trading stories. But he was always there, you know, listening, even if it was a young uh, educator giving his first talk at the ASCS. He'd be there and he'd be taking notes. And I think, you know, it's something that we could all aspire to uh I, th I think that's that's about what i would i would say is an answer to that question what are your thoughts dr biliani uh you know he was a unique personality and uh he uh made great contributions and i think he'll be remembered for that and he'll he, he'll be remembered for the fact that it's there's just not one way of doing something. There's several ways of doing something, and I think that uh, uh, he'll be remembered for that. I think the way he asked questions was pretty unique. Instead of saying, "I don't think you said the right thing," or "I think you've got this wrong," he would say things like, "Can you help me understand this?" And it was again this typical humble kind of approach. 
um, and I think he would be there today saying, can you help me understand a little bit more about why a subacromial balloon catheter is going to be good for people with, with rotator cuff problems? Or can you help me understand why a superior capsular reconstruction is of value? And he would ask it in a way that he was being humble and saying, I just don't understand this. Can you help explain it to me a bit more? Rather than saying, I think you've got this wrong or I think you're looking at it incorrectly. And uh, one other thing that I, that I got a chance to see, all of us visited Dr. Rockwood, but I got a chance to see him in action when people would come to him and being critical of other people's care. And this is one of the things that really set him off when uh, somebody would say, this doctor obviously screwed up, made a big mistake, and he would turn to whoever was uttering those words and say, were you there? In other words, were you there in the operating room with that surgeon? Do you really understand what was going on? Try not to be judgmental. Try to put yourself in the position of that particular surgeon at that particular time. So he, he, he worked to keep us all humble. And I'll give you one other quick example. When I was an ABC traveling fellow with Bernie Morey and uh, uh, Cecil Rohrbeck and a bunch of other guys, um, Berntolo, um, all of us sort of thought we were pretty good stuff. And he took us out under the, the stars one night there in San Antonio. They have stars in San Antonio, not here in Seattle. You can never see them. But uh, uh, he took us out under the stars and he said, look up there at those stars and just realize how small you guys really are. And that was, again, his way of trying to keep all of us humble. And he could do it with humor, too. I, I remember a paper that he discussed and it had to do with tendons healing to bone without doing anything to the bone like burying it down or uh, putting drill holes or anything <laughs> i just remember him you know i knew that he, he didn't believe that this was really true or and he said <clears throat> it was probably a dog uh, study or a rabbit study anyway and so he he'd go but wouldn't you just scratch it up a little bit? I mean, come on. Now, if you were doing it on a human being, wouldn't you just scratch the bone up just a little bit? And just scratch it up a little bit? So, you know, that was just hilarious uh, comment. I love these stories. You know, as we get a little bit toward the end of this podcast, I would love to ask each of you if you have any final thoughts you'd like to share regarding Dr. Rockwood or a favorite story that you'd like the listeners of this podcast to hear and to remember about him. I'm sure there are hundreds of things you could say and would want to say if we had, you know, hours and hours, but anything you'd like to leave our listeners with um, regarding Dr. Rockwood. Dr. Bigliani, we'll start with you. Yeah, well, one of the things that um, stood out to me about him when I was a fellow and he would come and visit Dr. Neer, he would give Dr. Neer a lot of grief and he would actually get Dr. Neer to laugh. And it was really funny. It was really funny because he he could give it to him and Nier could take it and laugh about it. So he had that unique ability to uh, make people laugh. Dr. Burkett, how about you? Any any last words of um, wisdom or thoughts about Dr. Burkett or any share or about Dr. Burkett, excuse me, about Dr. Rockwood you'd like to share or um, any final stories? Well, this will, this will tell you what kind of man he was. And this is very personal. I mean, I had a 
a, a severe depressive episode right after I finished. It, was, it started while I was a fellow, and it continued into my first, you know, several months of practice to the point that I was hospitalized. And I didn't, you know, when you're depressed, everything looks bad. And I couldn't remember. I thought, you know, I did a terrible job as a fellow. Dr. Rockwood hated me, you know, all this stuff. And then so he, he came to Dallas and came to see me in the hospital. And so that uh, it was, it meant a huge amount to me. So that's just the kind of person he was. Dr. Madsen, how about you? Any final stories or thoughts regarding Dr. Rockwood? Well, I... I even though I love to agree, disagree with Buzz, I think that we have to agree that Dr. Rockwood probably had a greater influence on the world of orthopedics than anybody that I can think of. And it's because of his teaching, because starting out with um, his book on care of the injured that he did, which was for many, many years, the, the manual for the EMTs and uh, go on to his uh, book about fractures and hand and shoulder. I think he has touched so many people, both directly with respect to giving them knowledge, but also giving them a, an approach uh, and uh, really letting them know, uh, again, the importance of the patient. And I think that we ought to just continue to honor him as sort of a, a, a representative of the best that a person can be in orthopedics. Well, I wanted to thank all of you for coming on and sharing your memories of Dr. Rockwood with us. It's it's really a great opportunity for Rachel and I to, to take part in listening to these memories and do our part to honor Dr. Rockwood and his contributions to our field. So thank you all for coming on, and we really appreciate your time. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Good job, guys. Yeah. Love you guys. Bye. Well, that's about all the time we have for this podcast. Again, we want to thank our speakers so much for spending the time honoring Dr. Rockwood and educating both Pete and myself, as well as all of the ASCS listeners and members about the honor and life and legacy of Dr. Rockwood. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.